Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Knowing Christ's Love, Knowing Christ's Love, or Knowing the Love of Christ, but Knowing Christ's Love. And as I was thinking about this topic, which is just one of four main points that Paul's ultimately going to make today in his prayer, but have to pick one to kind of lead us into it. And this is the one that stands out the most to me because to me, a lot of the rest of it flows from this understanding. There wouldn't be the rest of it until you can first wrap your mind around this. That God desperately loves you. That Jesus Christ loved you as he was willing to give himself for you, the ransom for you, the payment for you to die in your place. But as I was thinking about this topic about knowing Christ's love, maybe just think about love in general and this idea of somebody knowing that you love them. See, when you love someone deeply, you usually want them to know it too. It's, it's you, I say usually because sometimes maybe you don't. But in most instances, if you have, especially God's kind of love especially, but any kind of love for somebody, you want, to, you want them to be, be aware of it. You want them to realize that you love them. And so with adults, when it comes to adults, you simply tell them and expect that they can understand what you mean when you say to them, I love you. That they would understand what you, what you intend to go into that. Sort of the, the backdrop to that in addition to just the words, everything that is meant by this idea that I love you. You could say that and they would understand what you mean. But with children, it's a bit different. You tell them, and show them in many different ways, but you are often less confident that they really understand what you mean when you say, I love you. They are learning after all, and so as they're being introduced to different concepts and ideas, they have to put it all together. And depending on how small they are, it takes time for them to figure out fully what you mean when you say, I love you. So sometimes you ask questions like, do you know how much dad loves you? Do you know how much dad loves you? And I remember hugging my kids and asking them that question. I love you very much. Do you know how much I love you? And you're explaining to them that by asking questions and explaining even what love is, but you're wanting to be sure that they know that. You want your children to know that they're greatly loved. You see, loving fathers recognize the importance of their children knowing that, are, knowing that they're loved and not just loved a little, but loved greatly. And you, you ask, well, why would a loving father care that their child would recognize, understand, or know the depth of the love that the father has for that child? And the reason is because that child's confidence, stability, security, those are all byproducts of being loved. A child doesn't have that apart from seeing and understanding that their father and, and or mother, but I was using myself as an example, but their father loves them. And so this is why your heavenly father wants you to understand the, depths, the depth of his love for you too. That's why the Bible talks so much about God's love. That's why the New Testament in particular, but in the Old Testament, even the New King James or King James Version, oftentimes the word for love, steadfast love, is translated mercy, but it's found throughout the Old Testament. It's found throughout the New Testament in the form of the word agape as, many, as much as any other word uh, for God's love for us. And it's repeated over and over again. Well, why? Because a child's sense of confidence, their stability, their security, it flows from, and even their sense of dependence flows from knowing that there is a loving father who is on their side, who's for them, who is deeply interested and invested in their success and their well-being. Somebody who, as it relates to a child and a father, is infinitely stronger than them, more powerful than them, richer than them, 
And as a child looks at dad, it doesn't matter how little money you have compared to them, you're, you're wealthy. And so when they are young, they have no comprehension of money. So dad is rich, dad is powerful, dad is strong, dad is smart. Now they come to realize none of that's true, but they start out, they start out thinking that, right? And that's the same with the Heavenly Father. He wants us to recognize the difference is that it is all true about Him. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely capable. He's infinitely wealthy and rich. He is a God who is infinitely loving and caring. And He wants, as, our, as His children, He wants you to see that. Now, of course, you can't break up the triune Godhead when you think about the Father's desire that you would know how much He loves you. Of course, every... Every aspect of the Trinity loves you too because God in general loves you. God is love. As a very description of his very character and nature, 1 John tells us that God is love. God equals love. And so as we think about that expression as it relates to even Christ's disposition or his thoughts towards you, Christ loved you so much that he gave himself for you as the greatest expression of that love. So this, this morning, as part of this prayer of Paul, we're going to see how Paul understands the importance of these believers knowing and comprehending the Father's love and the love of Christ for them, in addition to several other things that he says, I want this to be true in your life so that you could thrive spiritually. And there's four of them that we'll bring out this morning. But Paul requests this experiential knowledge of God's love. It's not just knowledge in the sense of the abstract. It's the word that's used is experiential knowledge. It's gnosko, regarding knowledge that is acquired through experience, actually tasting and seeing, actually firsthand account, witnessing God's love in your life. And Paul says that he requests that this experiential knowledge of God's love would be true or would be available or would be comprehended by these Ephesian believers in addition to three other specific requests, again, related all to their spiritual well-being. And so that's what we'll find in this passage here this morning. So let's take a look at another one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there if you would. We're looking to begin in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Just for the sake of keeping our passage in context so we have kind of the full view of it. Let's read it all. Let's pick up in verse 14, read through the end of the prayer in verse 21. Starting in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, though, we have, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a lot loaded in here, quite a few 
verses even. We'll break them down, though, starting here with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, likely refers primarily to what was just said about these Gentile believers now being incorporated into the body of Christ. So Paul is talking about that as he comes up into this section where he's telling them, I don't, I don't want you to worry about the tribulations that I'm going through as a result of fulfilling the mission that God gave me, the mission that God gave me to be a witness for him, especially to the Gentiles, but I was to be preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ we see, even if you look back to verse 8. Then I was to be preaching this mystery. And what was the mystery that Jews and Gentiles would all be united together in Christ? That we would have this positional standing in Christ and this mission of being witnesses for him. And so as he thinks about that, in light of this idea that you've been given all of these spiritual blessings, that you've been given this mission, that you, it has been revealed to you, that you're now a part of the body of Christ, you're now referred to and you have an identity positionally in Christ, you've been blessed with all of the blessings that are associated with that newfound identity in Christ. Now, what he's basically saying is now appropriate that position. Now practically take advantage of all of those spiritual blessings that you've been given. And here's four things he's going to get into that will contribute to there. But this is the reason that I bow my knees to the Father. Now if you look at this phrase, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is primarily a reference to Paul's mental posture of prayer. Some have taken this to be specifically focused on the physical posture, but I don't think that's true. I think the primary focus here is this mental posture of prayer. Now, it can, it can also include an actual physical pro, po, posture of prayer too. I'm not saying it can't. But the, the mental posture of prayer that Paul is symbolizing here is an earnest, earnestness in his prayer, this idea of submissiveness or adoration for God. That's what he's doing. I'm recognizing your greatness, your grandeur. I'm recognizing how small I am compared to you, but I'm also recognizing that you love me, you care for me, and, so, and you care for these that I'm praying for, these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So I have this sense of earnestness, and I, I, I see how important these things are going to be to their spiritual well-being, and I know you care about that too, God. So I'm pleading with you, I'm coming to you this posture of bowing my knees. I'm coming to you in prayer. Now, the Bible describes several different physical postures of prayer. And to me, that reinforces the perspective that physical posture is secondary to your mental posture. It's your mental attitude as you approach the Lord in prayer. Now, I cut out a whole section on this because there's no way we would have gotten through it and gotten through communion here this morning. But here's just some examples. But I took out all of the references that we could have gone to and looked at all of these different physical postures. And if there's so many different physical postures of prayer, clearly the posture itself is not the focus. The focus is on the mental attitude or the mental posture behind that physical posture. So here's just a few. There's passages describing prayer that's done while bowing down. There's prayers that are recorded and in fact, this was the primary Jewish tradition of praying while standing. The two men went into the temple to pray. They were standing, though. You have a posture of kneeling. You have a posture of lying prostrate. Not prostrate. Prostrate. Okay? There's two totally different things there. <laughs> There's a posture of praying with lifted hands. There's a posture of praying with lifted eyes posture of playing, praying while silent and a posture of praying while crying out. Those are just a few of the different 
examples that you can find throughout the scripture. So be real careful when you have a sense that just the way you felt comfortable or been taught to do something is always the only way because the Bible describes many, many different ways to do this. In fact, because we're very careful to not be too, we don't want to be identified with the charismatic movement, sometimes we are, we have a position that we take where we stay so clear of that that we avoid anything that could possibly be associated with it. And some of that includes biblical things, things that you can actually read in the Bible. For example, there's many churches you could go to there where it wouldn't be uncommon during a worship service or during a song service for them to lift their hands. You'd actually find that there's more singing done in the Bible with lifted hands, especially in the Old Testament, than with not lifted hands. But yet, because we've identified it with a whole movement that we want to, we disagree with and want to steer clear of, because they overemphasize spiritual gifts and a few other things like that, also tend to garble the gospel. But that's not that's not really the point. The point being is that sometimes we'll have a judgment towards seeing anybody of a different sort of background. Maybe they're doing it with the right perspective or the right attitude. I have friends that pray with their hands lifted up. They get it directly from the Word of God. And so if they're doing it as unto the Lord with the right mental posture, that's not the focus. The focus is what is your thinking behind what you're doing and is there any biblical basis for your conviction that this is just the way that you're going to go about doing things. So that being said, I just know that we have a tendency anytime we see anything that's not, it's, we're not used to it, it kind of, we have a tendency to kind of go, I don't know about that. Okay, that's all you should say. I don't know about that. Maybe I should, you know, be generous and gracious about this and maybe even look into it a little bit. Maybe even wonder, why have I never seen this before or why am I so against this? In any event, what an aside, that wasn't the point. There's verses about all of these postures though. You want to pray lying on the ground with your face to the ground. Jesus prayed that way in the garden. That was one example. Daniel prayed on his knees. You can say that he, he did that each time he prayed, at least as it was recorded in Daniel chapter 6 verse 4. If you look at these different examples, people who are praying where their lips are moving but they're not actually speaking, you know, maybe you've seen somebody who does that where they're actually mouthing the words but they're not saying them. Then there's those that are in such a place of despair and it's, you see this in a lot of David's prayers where there's actually a lot of prayers where people are just crying out, just really raw, unfiltered emotion. Now Scandinavian folks are not really known for that but you could stretch outside of your comfort zone and see that there's some people who had such an intimate relationship with the Lord that they didn't they just they didn't try to filter it they just let it rip as far as letting the Lord know exactly what they were feeling and when they were feeling it they expressed anger towards the Lord they expressed frustration and fear towards their circumstances they cried out in agony they cried out to the Lord without any consideration of what other people around them might think about it you have to ask yourself why am I so concerned about how, how I do this. And it's part of it because I'm kind of worried what other people might think of me. I might be labeled the lunatic if I'm going around crying out and it looks like I'm talking to myself as I'm going down the street and I'm crying out they're trying to try to put me in, in some sort of a institution. In any event, I bow my knees. That's the posture that Paul describes here. It could have been his physical posture. Again, I think he's referring to his mental posture if you disagree no big deal it's not a hill worth dying on verse 15 we move on to here though and it says for this so we take the context from verse 14 for this reason i bow my knees to the father of our lord jesus christ from whom 
The whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, this refers back to the father. There's some disagreement of whether some, some of the manuscripts don't even have our Lord Jesus Christ in them. Some do, some don't. So many of the manuscripts say, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So most take the perspective that this is a reference back to God the father. Now, it could be a reference to God's creative influence or divine fatherhood over every familial or societal structure, which ultimately is responsible for their very existence. This idea that God is the creative influence. He's the the one who makes the very existence of any group or any family. He's the one who makes it possible. And if that's the case, then the emphasis in this interpretation is on God's power, sovereignty, and superiority. And would anybody disagree with that? I think the answer is no. If that's what this is intended to portray, this idea that everything owes its very existence, every group, because this word family is is not limited to an immediate nuclear family, but that every group of things owes its very existence to God's sovereign superior power. So you would kind of the emphasis there would be the Father who causes every group in heaven and earth to exist would be the takeaway. Now, this is a difficult little phrase because it's hard to know exactly what it means. I think it also, there's, there's another group that, that would take this perspective, that it's a reference to the whole family of redeemed men on earth and redeemed saints in heaven, of which God is Father, and thus believers are associated. And you think about that, believers are more than God's offspring. When Paul talks even to unbelievers, and he even gives a speech on Mars Hill, he talks about how we're all offspring of God. Now, but are we all sons of God, though, in a, in a familial sense? No, but we're all, we all owe our existence to God, so thus we're God's offspring. But believers are more than God's offspring. They are God's children. They were born into God's family. So God is the father of his adopted children in Christ who now by virtue of a common father now have a common name. That would be another way to sort of see this. The father's relationship with his children serves as the prototype for every paternal relationship. So from the whole family, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, in reference to the father, in reference to the family of God, the whole family, the redeemed family. The redeemed family that's in heaven presently as saints, the redeemed family that's on earth still has yet to, has yet to go to be with the Lord. Now, I favor this view just given the immediate context. Is, what is the immediate context here? It's, all, it's about all believers being united in one family or body in Christ. So I can't see how it wouldn't make that much sense to me where Paul would start off by putting all this emphasis on this mystery how blessed these believers are to be a part of the body of Christ, uh, how he's put so much emphasis about the position, positional truth and identification truth, how we're identified in Christ, we're placed into the body of Christ, and then here now we're talking about just all created groups in heaven and earth. I think he is sort of limiting his focus here to the idea of believers and the family, the whole family, both in heaven and in earth, of believers, and we find our name in being in Christ or being adopted into God's family, we've now taken on his name. So it's not the creative, it's not God's creative power that Paul would be so, so focused on here. It's God's love for his adoptive children, which he's been talking about as he's come up to this point in the book of Ephesians. So that would be my take that you would kind of take this, 
as being understood as God is the father of his adopted children in Christ, who now by virtue of a common father now have a common name. That's the best they can do for you on that. It's a tricky little phrase, a tricky little verse. We move to verse 16, that he would grant you, we're still talking about the father, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So Paul's desire for these believers, as we see, this is a prayer, this is an intercessory prayer that Paul's making on behalf of other believers. Now, what we've been trying to do as we've been going through this study is to not necessarily say this is the only things you should pray for or that the things we've been praying for are necessarily wrong, but our goal in looking at the Apostle Paul's prayers since they were inspired by the Spirit of God and recorded in the Word of God for our benefit, what would some of the takeaways be? Some, maybe some of the things that we're seeing occur in Paul's prayers that we don't necessarily utilize or take advantage of or incorporate into our own prayers. Now, here we have an example, again, of Paul having this intercessory concern for other believers. And I think we do a fantastic job in many ways of caring about other believers. As, as good as it could be, no, because we're not always walking under the influence of the Spirit of God and having that godly, sacrificial, selfless concern for others that is greater than our concern for ourselves. But while the Spirit of God is directing in our lives, that's true, and my concern for you is greater than it is for myself. That's a reflection of God's Spirit working in my life. Now, when that's true in our midst, then we're praying for one another. You know, when we circulate a prayer list, generally weekly, sometimes not exactly that, but with many, many needs and many, many people on it where we could be having intercessory prayer on behalf of others in our lives. Now, is any of that wrong? No, it's great. By God's grace, we'll continue to do that and do it even more. But the thing that I'm hoping we're thinking through as we're going through these passages is what else can we be doing? What else can we be praying for? And here we have another example of Paul not at least his recorded prayers here, being very focused on the spiritual well-being of his brothers and sisters in Christ. There's probably times where he's going to focus on their, their physical well-being, but his primary focus in the recorded prayers that we've seen so far is on their spiritual felt well-being, at least first and foremost. At least that's the parts that are recorded. Now, is he also praying very specific prayers for very specific people? Probably, and they didn't make it into Scripture because this is more generalized and God wants to have more general principles we can apply to our lives. And so the prayers that he has for whole groups of people generally are a little bit broader. And because they're a little bit broader, they're a little easier to make general applications to our own lives. So I'm not suggesting that Paul wasn't regular. He says he was praying without ceasing. He says he was thinking about other people all the time. He says he was mentioning other believers all of the time. So it stands to reason he was mentioning other things besides just this, but I want us to see here as we get into this that he has these four specific requests. This is going to be the first one here, but they're all focused on the spiritual growth and the spiritual well-being of these other believers. So now if I was going to summarize verse 16 here, I pray that God would provide you by drawing from his infinite resources and immeasurable riches with what? With great strength in your innermost being. Now, your innermost being referring to your mental, moral, and the, the mental, moral, and spiritual part of man. Now, how would he do that? Through the enablement and power of the Spirit. 
So that's, that's really the focus here. See, because, of the rich, because the riches of God's glory are without measure, Paul prayed that these believers would be strengthened beyond measure in comprehension. The main focus here is that he would grant you to have, be strengthened in the inner man. The, the, very, the, very mo, the very central most part of man, the mental, moral, spiritual part of man where volition is, where your intellect, your thinking is, where your emotions are, where your volition is found. That's the part, the, the central, the control center for man. That's sort of the idea. I want that, I want you at your very core, your very spiritual core to be strengthened but not just a little bit, strengthened in the sense of God's infinite resources, strengthened according to or in light of or in the, the same measure as God's infinite power, God's infinite strength, beyond comprehension, be, beyond anything you could even think of, which we'll get to at the end of this prayer. And as you think about the spiritual blessings, you know, Paul is saying, I want you to now appropriate this position, this identity, this blessings that you have in Christ. That's what all of these four things are about. I want you to practically take advantage of them. So here we're talking about that's only going to happen as the Spirit of God strengthens us internally. You see, believers could never practically appropriate their spiritual blessings apart from the enabling power of the Spirit. It is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is the spirit. It's the strength comes from his spirit. That's how we're empowered. And you think about that. Very often, we're looking to be strengthened in the inner man. Who wouldn't want to be strengthened in the inner man? I mean, raise your hand if you don't want to be strengthened. I mean, everybody would like to have more strength, more inner strength. That's not the issue of a desire. The issue is you're not tapped into the right resources to get that strength. You're not appropriating the Spirit of God's strength. You're seeking to strengthen yourself or to build yourself up or to become a little bit more steadfast or firm, but you're often trying to do it through our our own power. Even worse, sometimes we're trying to do it through tapping into other people's power. We're relying on them to make this true in our lives. This is about a personal walk with the Lord, a personal response to the Lord where you have the opportunity to tap into His power that's living inside of you. And so the question here with this first thing that Paul's praying for, that God would grant you to be strengthened in your innermost self. Is that something that you pray for? Do you pray like that? Could you use inner strengthening? And the answer is yes. Could others in your life use inner strengthening? Yes, the answer is yes. Are we praying for that for them? Paul's praying for this for other believers. Now we move on to verse 17. We have our second thing here. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the second specific request that Paul makes in his intercessory prayer. He's saying this is another thing that's essential to you appropriating practically your position and identity in Christ. For that to happen, for you to practically appropriate that position Christ is going to have to dwell in your hearts presently by faith. See, this word here, dwell, it conveys the idea of settling down or taking up permanent residence. Christ is going to have to take up permanent residence in your heart. Christ should find his home or be at home in believers' hearts. That's the idea that's being communicated here. And again, the heart is much like the inner man. They're slightly different ideas. The heart very specifically refers to this control center. Uh, it very specifically includes 
personal volition, emotion, will. That's not the inner, innermost man is even broader. The heart is a little bit narrower, but still the spiritual part of man, the, the controlling part of man, the innermost part of man. But the application here is practical Christian living. This isn't that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith in terms of justification from the penalty of sin. There has to be a point in time where, yes, you do make a decision to put all of your eggs in the basket of trusting in Jesus Christ's solution to deal with your sinfulness as He died in your place and paid your debt on Calvary's tree. You have to come to a place where you see, I have a need, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve heaven. If I get what I deserve, I deserve to be separated from God on account of my sinfulness for all of eternity because the Bible declares that there's none right, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is separation or death from God in a spiritual sense. That I can't be with God unless something is done about my sin. So if I depend on myself, rely on myself, and there's not one just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, if my best efforts at being right or doing what is right, all of man's righteous works and efforts are filthy rags before a perfectly holy and just God, I'm in a real pickle. And until you can come to a place where you see, I have a need to be rescued because I'm presently hopeless and helpless and hellbound, I'm drowning right now, and unless a Savior comes along to rescue me, I will, I will perish. And that's why even when we think about famous verses, very t- I, I talk to people about John 3.16 all the time. Many of them say that they know it, they can quote it, they don't understand it though. See, the focus of John 3.16 is all on what God has done for man who couldn't do it for himself. What was the motivation in it? Not guilt, not shame, not fear, like religion teaches. God's motivation for us was to respond to his love, which he showed to us through the sacrifice of his son. So God loved the world so much that he gave, he sent, he sacrificed his only begotten son. Well, what did that entail? That entailed his son being nailed to a cross, who was the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God who had no sin, was perfectly holy and righteous, and having all of my sins poured on him so that he could cry out in agony, it is finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could cry these things out for me as he died for me, as he suffered for me. So all my sin was poured on him. The just ended up dying for the unjust, which was me. And then this trade-off took place the moment I put my trust in that. It says, his righteousness was then credited to my account. Not because I had done anything. He'd been the one who did the work, but because I had accepted what he had done for me. So then now my sin fell on him and his righteousness was credited to my account. I could become viewed, judicially determined to be justified before God. I could be in a right standing before God, not on the basis of my own righteousness because I had none, because all of my works of righteousness, again, were filthy rags. But now I had the righteousness of Christ on my account. So that God, when he looked at me, he saw me standing in the shoes of his son. And he could say, now you can have an intimate standing, intimate fellowship, intimate union with me. Because of the sacrifice of my son in whose shoes you are now standing. In whose righteousness you are now clothed. Praise God. That that rescue plan, God saw me in my time of need. And he made a rescue for me that didn't include me doing anything other than accepting what his son would do for me in my place. 
That's why the good news of the gospel isn't what I can do for God. The focus of the gospel is in how I can cling to God, how I can turn to God, how I can give up, how I can give up all the bad things in my life. Although to, to, you do turn to God in the sense that you're choosing to put your confidence in God. But very often you hear about turning away from all of the bad things in your life. And the focus isn't on what you're turning away from. It's who you're putting your trust in, in that sense, who you're turning to. The focus of the gospel isn't my commitment level. The focus of the gospel isn't my faithfulness to keep what God started or to finish what God started. The focus of the gospel isn't on my works, on my rituals, on my church, the church that I've gone to, on the hoops that I've jumped through. The focus on the gospel is in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of the gospel. The good news is that Christ did for me what I couldn't do for myself. In any event, the focus from the Bible's perspective isn't on what I can do for God. It's how will I respond to what He's done for me. And the only response that the Bible says is acceptable is faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And I have to at the same time recognize it's not of myself. So some people think that they've done that. They say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But they also believe that they're doing their part. See, the plus side of it is it's faith in what Christ has done. The negative part of it is it's not of myself. There's nothing I can add or contribute to what God has already said is perfectly accomplished and completed. Do you recognize that? Later, we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember, have a special time of remembrance of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. You'll have nothing to remember or celebrate if you've never put your faith in His sacrifice for you, if you've never put your confidence in Him. There'll be nothing to remember. Let it pass by when the time comes because you'd be a fraud. You'd be a phony in that sense because you'd never put your trust in His death, burial, and resurrection. So how could you celebrate what He's done until He comes again? But the one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is looking forward eagerly to His return. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says, I'd rather depart. To live is Christ, but to die would be gain. It would be a step up, a giant step up from this in a way that we can't even fathom, that we can't even wrap our minds around. So we're so desperately clinging to this life, and Jesus is saying, learn to cling to me. Learn to look forward to the future life that I have planned for you, and enjoy the life you have now. But don't, you don't have to cling to it in the sense that you're desperate to hold on to this life when the future life is so much better than this. In any event, we have the second appeal that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not about that first tense, that, that decision to put your trust in Christ for the first time. This is about presently making decisions to presently have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to be trusting Him in your life, in your daily walk, your walk of faith. And this is always the practical byproduct of a Spirit-influenced or Spirit-directed life. Now remember, that's the previous context here. That you would be strengthened through the Spirit. When the Spirit is actively leading and influencing, directing in your life, you're going to be allowing, making room for Christ to be at home, to feel at home in your heart. You're going to be walking by faith in that moment. 
And Christ wants to presently and practically reside within every believer in a manner that brings about his ongoing spiritual transformation and positively influences his every thought, word, and deed. Christ is interested. God is interested in your spiritual growth. He's interested in influencing you in a way that would promote him and lift him up so that your thinking would be focused on him. And as your thinking would be focused on him, the things you say would be a reflection of him. The things that you do would be compatible and consistent with his working in your life. That's God's desire for your life. And that's what Paul's praying here, that this would be presently practically true that you would appropriate this position and these promises in your daily life that Christ could feel at home that he would be welcome in your heart because you're walking by faith you're trusting him you're interested in him leading you're focused on him you're occupied with him you're captivated by him you see how all of, all of this kind of goes together so that through faith there it's just referring to your heart condition, a condition, that's present, a condition that's necessary as the underlying means for this to occur. Christ is going to find his home in the believer's heart whenever the believer is presently responding or living and operating in faith. And it's not going to occur apart from you presently being convinced that God is real, that he's worth trusting, that he's worth following, that he's worth yielding to, that he's worth depending on. That you're, you're actively having present faith and belief in Him. And, and when that's true, Christ ha, he's, has room in your heart. He's, he's, he can feel at home. He can be a part of this intimate fellowship, this walk with Him. And there's no spiritual success if Christ isn't at home or welcome in your heart. How can you have spiritual su- success if Christ isn't welcome? If He's not dwelling in your heart. What did Christ say in John 15? If you abide in me, my word would abide in you. And while you're abiding in me, you will what? Bear much fruit. You want spiritual success? Stay connected to him. He says, without me, you can do nothing. So how do you expect that you're going to have spiritual growth and spiritual success when Christ isn't at, he's not welcome? He's not dwelling in your heart presently? If he's the only one who could produce that in your life, how could it possibly happen if he's being pushed off to the sideline. Well, obviously, it couldn't happen in that scenario. So the question is, do you pray like this? Do you pray for things like this? Again, we have the first prayer, that the per- first specific request that God would grant you to be strengthened in your innermost self. Here we have that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Is that what you're praying for yourself? Are you praying that for other people? Now we move on to the third one here. This is where our title this morning comes from. Knowing the love of Christ. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now we've combined here the last part of verse 17 all the way up to the first part of verse 19 here. And this is Paul's specific, his third specific request to God on behalf of these believers, again with a focus to their spiritual growth and well-being. Now, the main idea here is that you may be able to comprehend the extent of Christ's love for you. So if you simplify, that's what he's praying, that you would be able to even comprehend the great extent of Christ's love for you. Now, how many believers would benefit from this comprehension? You see where it says there? that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. 
Every believer has to be, get to a point where they could comprehend just how much God loves them as same being true of Jesus Christ. Just how much Christ loves them. So kids are taught to sing, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, but are we living in light of that? Jesus loves me in a way I can't even fathom, but I want to know it. I want to understand it. I want to appropriate it in a practical sense. Just how much Christ loves me. Just how much Jesus loves me. All the saints would benefit from that. Now, how is this going to happen? What's the means of this? Well, it says you're already, that you being, meaning this is already true of you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's going to make it possible for you to comprehend the depth, the measure of the love that Christ has for you. Now, those two words, they refer to foundations being established. That because you have these foundations that are already established in love, and the first word refers to agriculture, to roots being set deep in plants. The other one refers to footings and buildings being dug deep. But the idea is that because you have these established foundations of love, that in light of that, I'm praying that you'd be able to fully comprehend how much God loves you. Now, having already been, you know, when you say being rooted and grounded, that's in the perfect tense. It indicates that this was a past action with continuing results. So the way you could say it is, having already been rooted and grounded in love, I'm praying that you would be able to comprehend the extent of God's love for you. And when you look at this love, you're established in love. You were rooted and grounded in love. That already happened. Now, what kind of love? What was that love that he's referring to there when he says, you were already rooted and grounded and established in this love? Well, that's the love that God demonstrated through Christ, and it's also referring to spirit-produced love in, in their lives. See, God demonstrated, the whole thing was a picture of love as God demonstrated his love through the sacrifice of his son. Then the first thing that the Spirit is said to produce in a believer is a yielded believer who's depending on trusting and allowing God to work in his life is the first thing he said to produce is the fruit of the Spirit is love. So you're rooted and grounded, you're established already in that love, the love that Christ showed for you in his sacrifice and God showed through his willingness to send him and the Spirit produces in your life. That's what is giving you that foundation to establish you. Now, he starts to talk about to comprehend the extent of the love of Christ. And when he says that phrase, the width and length and depth and height, it just refers to the immensity or vastness of Christ's love. Now, how big is Christ's love exactly? Well, it's said to passes knowledge. It's the kind of love that passes knowledge. And that just means it exceeds any normal experience or understanding. There's no human equivalent to this. If you're going to comprehend God's love, you're, out, you're going to have to find it in His revealed Word. You're going to have to find it in His example that is recorded in the pages of Scripture because that's the only place you're going to find this kind of love. The only way you're going to be able to comprehend the depth of that love that God has for you through the love of Christ, that Christ has for you. And as you're thinking about that, we don't have a lot of time here this morning, but Here's just a few of these verses that are talking about how can you wrap your mind about how big is Christ's love exactly? Well, it's big enough that he would sacrifice himself for you. Here's a famous passage on this, Galatians 2.20. Paul's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm now identified with his death on my behalf. His death was applied to my account. So now I've positionally been identified with his death. I've been crucified with him. 
It is no longer I now who live because I have this new life in Christ. My identity changed from being in Adam to now I'm identified as being in Christ. How? Because of my faith in the finished work of Jesus, I was placed into Christ. I was now identified with Him. I was adopted into God's royal family. So it's no longer I who live. The life that I have is Christ living in me. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, everything changed. I was, I'm now a new creation in Christ. Now, I live by faith in the Son of God, but how is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, how is He described? He loved me and He gave Himself for me. That's how much He loves me. So if you're going to try to comprehend the extent of the love that God has for you, it's going to start with trying to comprehend how the Creator God would bankrupt heaven to send His Son to die for a miserable wretch like you and I. So you sing words. I talked to folks in the nursing home recently. They sing songs. They sing songs without knowing what they mean. I say, do you like the song Amazing Grace? Yes. Do you know what the words mean? Amazing Grace, meaning God giving you something you don't deserve. How sweet the sound. That saved. Saved means you had to be rescued. Somebody else had to do the rescuing. You weren't rescuing yourself. That saved a what? A wretch like me. You had nothing to offer God, absolutely nothing to bring to the table, but God in his love could look at you in your time of need and he could rescue you anyway. Do you get that? Do you understand the depth of that love? And he he communicates a similar idea here in Ephesians 5 too. He's talking now about practical Christian living a little bit later in the same book. He says, and walk in love, live in love, have your manner of living be wrapped up in love. Some of you are like, this guy talks about love too much. The Bible talks about love all the time. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Now, how did he show that? What is the depth? How deep is the Father's love for you? That he sent his Son who gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You look at Romans 8.35. What is the depth of this love? He's praying that you could know, that you could comprehend, that you could understand the depth of Christ's love for you. Romans 8.35 and 37 here touch on a little bit the depth of the love of God. It's so deep that you could never be separated from it. That it's greater than, God's love is greater than all of your failure, all of your mistakes. God's love is greater than all of your personal problems. God's love is greater than all of your screw-ups and your mess-ups, all of the times that you've done what was wrong. It's greater than that. That's how great it is. And, and you'll never be separated from His love. This is where eternal security is, is an, a passage that brings that out. We can't be separated from it because it's not us maintaining it or preserving it or, or keeping it anyway. God's the one who's made the promise that I will never let you go. You will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. God made that promise, not me. I'm not working to earn the last little bit. I'm not working to push the ball across the finish line. God already carried it across the finish line through the work of his son. And he said, you will not perish, but you will have life that never ends. Can you take God at his word? It's his promises that are faithful, not not my faithfulness that's in view. So with that in mind, we can say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then here's some examples. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Should any of the circumstances of life, can they ever separate me from God's love? And he says, no. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who? 
We're talking about the love of Christ. That's how much he loves you. Paul's saying, I desperately want you to comprehend just how great that love is. And so God says that your spiritual well-being is tied to you knowing the love of Christ. And that's knowledge that is learned through experience. That word knowing there, gnosko. This is love that is learned through experience. Have you experienced his love? Have you seen his compassion? Have you seen his faithfulness? Have you seen him show up in your life? And you see that though when you talk about experience. How could I experience God's love if I'm not even making room for him? If he's not even welcome in my life? How, How could I experience somebody's love apart from living life with them? How how does a child experience the love of the father? It's because the father is nurturing and living life with and and undertaking in that child's life. How could you experience your spouse's love if you never were around them, never made time for them, never included them, never welcomed them into your life? And, And God's saying, I want you to experience this love, which means living life with him. And here we are living life on our own, pushing them off to the side, saying, I'll let you in only where it's convenient. I have this little tiny box of time in my life where I'll try to fit all the God stuff in there. And I I don't want you the rest of the time. I want to do my own thing. And God's like, I want to permeate every facet of your life, not some of the time, but all of the time. I want to live life with you so you could truly comprehend through experience the depth of my love for you. Do you see that, child? And then the next question then is, do you know the love of Christ? Do you pray for this comprehension in yourself? Do you pray for this comprehension in others for their spiritual growth and well-being? And now we have our last one here. The fourth specific request, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul makes this final request related to these believers' spiritual growth and well-being here. And it's that the idea here is that you would be filled up with the complete measure of all God's fullness. That you would be filled up with the complete measure of all of God's fullness. And this occurs only by being filled with Christ because that's where all the fullness of God resides. We're filled up with all the fullness of God by being filled up with Christ because that's where the fullness of God can be found. See, you already possess this fullness positionally by being in Christ. Remember, none of this passage is about positional truth. This is about practical Christian appropriating these truths so that you would have the spiritual well-being that God wants, the spiritual growth that God wants in your life. Now, I want you to, you're already positionally, you already have this. You're already complete. And so, it says this about Christ, for in Him... Colossians 2, 9 through 10, dwells what? All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness is already wrapped up in Christ. But you're complete in Him because you stand in Him positionally. So you already already positionally have this fullness, the fullness of God because you're in Christ and Christ has the fullness of God. And He's the head of all principality and power. So that's not the idea. The idea here is you already have it positionally. Now practically, will you allow Christ to reside in your life? Will you be filled with Christ so that you can experience the fullness of God? Are you going to remain connected to Him? Are you going to abide in Him? That's the idea. Then he ends here with the most, one of the most famous doxologies in all of the New Testament. A doxology just meaning a prayer of praise. He's going to lift up this just amazing prayer of praise here that is one of the most famous. Many of you may know it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory 
in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But we start with this. So we'll go through it quickly here. But to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I, want, I, I know you're familiar with this. But in the context, I just want to remind you that in the context, Paul still has in mind the four specific intercessory requests he just made on behalf of these, be- these believers. Now, we take this verse much broader, and, and, it, and the principle is true. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Do we appropriate that? But Paul is saying, I'm asking for these things specifically, and now he's going to comment on, and I know you can do it, God. So the idea would be, Lord, I leave these requests with you, and I know you can do this and more. I know you can do this and more. See, the power for answering these prayers is the same power that lives in believers. You see how it says, according to the power that works in us, the same power that's working in us, what is that power? The power of the Spirit of God? That's the same power, it's God's power, that is able to answer these petitions favorably. These requests that Paul has been making for the well-being of these believers that they would be strengthened in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in their hearts. That they would be able to comprehend Christ's love for for them. That they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And now Paul's saying, I know you can do this. That's my prayer for them. I know you can do it and more. You see, he is able. He's able to do far more above and beyond anything that you can even imagine. Do you believe that about your God? Could you lift up this doxology this morning? Could you lift up this praise this morning in a way that would be true? In a a way that would be representative of your actual belief, your actual faith? Do you believe this about your God? He's able. That's where the song, He's able, comes from. He's able. But He's able to do more above and beyond what you can even think or imagine. We won't even bring the things that we can think or imagine to him. We won't even give him credit for doing the things that we think he might be able to do. But he's saying he can do above and beyond what you could even come up with or dream up with. But you've got to bring it to him. You've got to be willing to include him in it. And we have this last verse that I already read through. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. All this means is God deserves all the glory for what he has done in the church through Christ. This praise should be, it should and ultimately will continue for all eternity. It will, regardless of whether we do it or not, but we should be a part of that. We should be the ones that are praising Him, especially in light of what we get in on here as being a part of the church through Christ. So, knowing the love of Christ, that's just one of the examples we saw this morning of spiritually beneficial requests that could be made on behalf of others. We saw all four of them, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would be strengthened in the inner man, that they would comprehend God's love, and that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. So the question is, are, are these things you've ever considered praying for? Are you convinced that he's able to fulfill your requests in a manner that's beyond your imagination? Do you think of others and think of praying these things for them, for their spiritual well-being and their spiritual success? I hope you do. That should be the takeaway from this passage. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I've already explained what it's about. I've already explained that it doesn't make sense to have a time of remembrance for something that you've never trusted in, you've never put your faith in. 
So this morning is a time for us to be intentional. We do it here on the first Sunday of the month. We celebrate the Lord's death. There's some symbolism here in terms of it's not mystical, but there's symbolism in the sense that the grape juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. The wafers represent Christ's body that was broken for us, and we do this in remembrance of Him until He comes. But we should be remembering His death, His burial, and His resurrection for us each and every day because that's what makes this new life even possible. That's how we could even be known as Christians or Christ, Christ ones. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to ask you to take a moment to think about those things. Prepare your heart so that you're in the right headspace so that you're actually thinking about these things and celebrating, celebrating them if you're a, a believer. And if you're not a believer, I would just ask, why not today? Why not, pick, why not today be the day of salvation? and put your faith in Jesus Christ so that even by the time the elements come by you, you could have something to celebrate. I wish that you would do that.